I do want you to open your Bibles, as Steve hinted, and Galatians, please. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. I was asked in the week, will I be picking up Elijah again, which I did when I was with you last time in October, but I felt not at Christmas. We're going to look at a passage that relates to the season. Galatians chapter 3, reading from verse 23 and on into the first seven verses of chapter 4. I'm reading from the NASB. Galatians 3.23 But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor or guardian to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Now, I say, as long as the heir is a child, he doesn't differ at all from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your presence with us. We thank you for your favour upon our lives and indeed upon this church. We thank you for the privilege that Steve had yesterday and we pray for that word to keep living in the hearts and minds of those who are exposed to it. We thank you your word is living and powerful, able to bring forth fruit. We pray that it will. The Holy Spirit, we once again now open this word and we pray that you would be our teacher. Holy Spirit, would you please inspire me to speak and each of us to listen that what we do here is a work of God and that we're taken forward in our faith. Hear us, Father, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're considering this Christmas season, but not looking at the shepherds and Mary and Joseph and uh, the stable and many things that we associate with the Christmas season, but looking at one of Paul's great, wonderful statements about what was taking place at this Christmas season, how God sent his son, who was born of a woman. And then, subsequently, God sent forth the Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're considering this Christmas season, but not looking at the shepherds and Mary and Joseph and uh, the stable and many things that we associate with the Christmas season, but looking at one of Paul's great, wonderful statements about what was taking place at this Christmas season, how God sent his son, who was born of a woman. And then, subsequently, God sent forth the spirit of his son. And so Paul, in this classic Trinitarian verse, is talking about God's great plan of salvation, sending his son, sending the spirit of his son, that we might come into full sonship ourselves, enjoying the massive privileges of being children of God. It's a magnificent passage 
and incredibly, wonderfully insightful in terms of what God was doing. And it's good sometimes to sweep away the snow and the tinsel and look at what was God actually up to in this phenomenal thing that was taking place. So let's just look into it. We're going to be looking at it fairly uh, closely. First of all, I just want to see this. It says, when the time had fully come. When the time was fulfilled. That's a similar phrase that you'll find elsewhere in the Bible. It says similar about the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. When it, it came to its moment. Pentecost had had history in the Old Testament. It was a time of celebrating the harvest. It was a time of celebrating the giving of the law. It was full of potential, but that's completely overshadowed now by the New Testament day of Pentecost, when God came in power and fire upon the waiting apostles. So, here we say the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. It fully came. And here we've got similar kind of idea. When the time had fully come, it was fulfilled. When that moment had reached its destiny. You'll find also that when Jesus began to preach, it says in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So good for us to remember who is running the show. Who is running the nations, running history, overshadowing everything, his timings perfectly established, his purpose unfolding. He is head over all things for the church. Now, we can get a bit scared when we think, what is going on? You know, the ecology, where we've just been in New Zealand, they're very conscious of the ozone layer being very thin, apparently, over Australia and New Zealand. And uh, constantly on television, advertisements, cover yourself, don't let the sun get to you. And we found on a, actually just like a 20-minute walk, when it didn't seem very hot, when we came back, our faces were burning. They said, yes, yes, you must be very careful. The ozone layer here in this part of the world is very, very thin. And uh, there's a kind of breakdown in the patterns while we were in New Zealand. There was flooding on television. We saw flooding everywhere. They said, what's going on? Floods, people taken out of their homes. And we're hearing these days more and more a kind of breakdown. What's happening to the climate? What's happening to the poles? They're melting. What's going on? People are beginning to get very scared about the unusual excesses of weather. What's going on to the planet? And then sometimes we hear fear being represented in other ways, like the economic upheaval that's taking place. Is everything falling apart? We know that the financial banking systems of the world are held together by confidence and security. And when the confidence begins to fall, we think, wow, what's going to happen? So many are going to lose their jobs. What's going to happen? How will we be able to trust the RAND? What will happen to our economy? And, and we think, what, is, is God in control? Who is in control? Is anybody in control? Is Gordon Brown in control? Someone's got to be looking after us. And we can get very nervous as to what's happening in the world. Then you hear of the devastation of AIDS and HIV. Morality at such a low the security of the family unit falling apart. So you think, if there's a battle on, have we got the moral fibre to see it through? There's such moral devastation. It's so easy for us to think, well, what is going on? And is the world spinning helplessly out of control? It's good at such a time, when you can be tempted to think that way, to stumble on a verse like this. In the fullness of time, God acted. And it doesn't mean he found a gap, or oh, perhaps I could get in here. It means he's running the whole thing. God is working out history. God's hand is upon things. And of course, it can be looked at as regards uh, the, the details of world if events at such a time when, yes, the Greek language was being spoken almost universally around that part of the world. The Romans had come and established what they called the Roman peace they imposed what they called the Pax Romana. That means you don't fight because we're running the place. And uh, there's one language, there's no national barriers, there are Roman roads that link the nations, and, and all sorts of things that are falling into place. The diaspora, the scattered Jewish people, are setting up their synagogues in all kinds of cities so that as the uh, missionaries, the apostles went on their journeys, they could cross 
borders. They didn't have to learn another language. They could walk into a place called a synagogue where the Bible's already honoured. It's phenomenal. And yet, actually, Jews being scattered, Romans imposing, Greeks imposing, looks like chaos, but God is working to his plan. God is making everything work together in his purpose, even wanting Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, as it's said in the Old Testament he would be. And so there comes a national, international degree from Caesar. You must go back home. God, absolutely in charge. I hope we're secure in that. You secure in that? He is head over all things for the church, particularly observing his purpose, which is for the church. Jesus is running everything. So, in the fullness of time, what? God sent forth, not an angel, not a burning bush, but he sent forth his son. Incredible commitment on a massive scale. God came. Great mystery. God taking on human form. The incarnation. The word became flesh. It's great for us to know it wasn't just a fleeting visit. It's not that for a while he clothed himself in flesh. He became flesh. He became flesh. God took a breathtaking step that affects the Godhead. God became something he wasn't before. He became man. Sometimes we hear people say, but I guess in a universe as big as this, and so many stars, billions and billions of stars, I guess there's probably life on another planet. I guess, you know, we had the fluke of it happening here. I guess it happened somewhere else as well. And people begin to wonder, oh, is there life elsewhere? Now, the Bible says, no, this is the focal point. This is where God's intention and commitment is. He became an earth man. He became flesh. And not only did he become flesh, he retains that. Jesus went into heaven taking that human form and the claim was he will return in similar fashion. He's man. He's the God-man in the heavens. In fact, it says in Daniel in chapter 7, that classic passage where Daniel sees prophetically a vision. He said, I kept on looking and behold the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. What's the son of man doing in heaven? What's a man doing there? He was coming to the ancient of days, was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, men of every language might serve him. This man, this son of man. What's the son of man doing? He's receiving dominion, everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And then a few verses later, you get the hint of where I want to go later on in this verse, in this sermon but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. So I thought the kingdom was given to him. Yeah, it is given to him, but it's also given to the saints. What's this about? Well, it's going to take a bit more New Testament revelation to tell us what that means. But Jesus became man and then ascended, taking manhood into heaven. The word became flesh. This is not then that we as a human race are incidental in the universe. We are the focal point of heaven's attention. His commitment is absolutely massive to this planet, to its history, its purpose, the nations, what he's doing. God's eye is on this little globe in the midst of his huge universe. He came then, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, And we're so familiar with the phrase, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. That's what we think about, Jesus the Saviour from sin. But actually, in this passage, it's not so much about Saviour from sin, it's more about redeeming us from being under the law. It's not so much about saving from sin, it's about status, where we stand in relationship to God, and particularly with regard to the previous religion that had been preparing the way for the coming of the Saviour. And so Paul's particular focus here is not so much on sin, but on status. He was born under the law. Born of a woman, born under the law. To what purpose? To redeem those who were under the law 
that we might have sonship. That was his great, great plan. And actually, we need to kind of stand back a bit and say, what is Paul writing about here? Why is Paul writing to the Galatians at all? Some would say uh, it was his hottest letter. It's his angriest letter. You can almost feel the pages burning uh, as he's writing it. And he says, after a a, a brief greeting in in Galatians 1, uh, by verse 6, he's saying, I'm amazed. And hello, Paul writing to you. What on earth are you up to? And uh, he's really furious with them. Uh, J.P. Phillips translates chapter 3, verse 6. You dear idiots, what are you doing? How can you desert the gospel? What are you doing? Of course, what they're doing was embracing Jewish law. That's what they were doing. It's often happened that Paul would preach in a, a town, would walk in, proclaim the glorious gospel of the grace of God, would preach to the heathen that they can come to God. People who had no knowledge of God, he would teach them and preach to them about Jesus and they would come into freedom and grace and acceptance and sonship. They would be filled with the Spirit. Signs and wonders would be happening among them. They were a community together in God. Paul would build them up and teach them and spend maybe a year or two with them, or sometimes less or more, and then he'd move on. And then what often happened was that Judaizers, as people call them, Jewish background people would come in and say things like this, Hey! It's great. You've received the Messiah. Our prophets have told us this would happen. Isaiah told us centuries ago that the heathen would come to see that the God of Israel is the true God and that you would abandon your idols and, and embrace the true, authentic God of Israel. Well done. Welcome. Now, if you want to be really authentic, there's some stuff you should do. Uh, you should get circumcised. Uh, see we've been walking with God for centuries we know what he wants he wants circumcision, he wants you to keep the Sabbath Uh, don't eat that stuff anymore you don't eat that, you don't do that and so they would bring in the law which they'd always had and impose the law upon these people who'd suddenly found Israel's God and they said well we've been with God for years this is what he requires and some would say oh okay, okay we'll take this on board to somehow make ourselves complete to make sure that we are acceptable, that we're really in. We've got all the marks of people who actually belong to God. Okay, we'll embrace this. And when Paul heard, he was furious. What are you doing? What they were doing was they were abandoning the gospel of grace, receiving Old Testament law and reducing the gospel to any old religion where you just keep rules. And completely missing the point. He said, you are falling away from grace. You who are receiving law. What are you doing? He was totally furious. He said, if even an angel said that you are under Torah, under law, let him be accursed. If anybody preaches you're under law, he's anathema. And Paul's furious. Because you are confusing the gospel. You are mingling grace and rule keeping and somehow trying to get the two together, and they don't mix. Jesus has redeemed us from the law. He's brought us out from under it. The law has fulfilled its purpose. Never, ever mingle and mix these things. So he is furious with them. You say, well, how did he redeem us from the law? Well, it says so in the earlier chapter, the whole letter's about it. It says in chapter 2, verse 19, through the law... I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. As J.B. Phillips translates that, as far as the law is concerned, I may consider that I died on the cross with Christ. As far as the law is concerned, I may consider I have been crucified with Christ. My relationship with law is over. The law can't condemn me. It already crucified me. Historically, it's behind. I have been crucified. The law is thoroughly satisfied. It has thoroughly fulfilled its work. It has condemned sinners in Christ. And Jesus vindicates the law by dying in our place. Though he never broke one, 
He never broke a law. He's perfectly fulfilled it. He said, if uh, anyone's got any charge against me, make it. No one could challenge Jesus that he was a lawbreaker. He was righteous and pure. But he also fulfilled the law in that cursed is everyone who hangs upon a cross. The law thoroughly cursed him. And we were crucified with him. We were in him. The law was fulfilled. We are dealt with. He has redeemed us from the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And the tragedy was this, that these people who had been freed from where they'd come from were not pressing through to enjoy their adoption. Their full rights as a son. They were going back to the law. Now, Paul gives us an interesting illustration. If you've got your Bible still open, you might just look again at those first verses of chapter 4. Now, I say, as long as the heir is a child, he doesn't differ at all from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So, Paul is saying, listen, it's almost like the Jewish race, you with your background, while you were a child, well, let's say, he's he's describing really like a Roman household, and he's saying in that Roman household, in that family, and Roman households would be extended house, so there'd be the the parents, the children, uh, very often slaves, several slaves, their children, And so in a large Roman household, the sort of household probably that churches started meeting in, those big houses where crowds could come in, there'd be the father, the mother, their children, slaves, their children, further slaves, their children, senior slaves, junior slaves, all their children. And he's saying this. While the heir is a child, there's an heir, there's one in that household who is going to inherit the whole deal. He's the heir. There's a child. There's lots of children around the house. Many children. One of them is the heir of the whole thing. He will inherit the house, the property, the land, everything that goes with it. He's the, the heir. But while he's a child, you can't distinguish him. He's like a slave, though he owns everything, Paul says. So here's a child running around, and, 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 and he, he looks like any other slave while he's a child. And during that period, he is under guardians. What was the guardian? Well, the old King James says he's our school teacher to lead us to Christ. Well, that's not a very good uh, translation of the word, which is a pedagogue. It's it's, It's a senior slave who had responsibilities in the household, particularly for the children. And very often... And you can see uh, artwork of that generation where, the, where this person is painted or uh, engraved. You see the children. You often see this, this figure, the senior slave with a stick and he's taking these children along. And he would collect them and take them to the school place. That was a job he had to do. He wasn't a school teacher. He didn't teach, actually. He had guardian responsibility to deliver them to the school. And while they were children, the heir, just look like anybody else. Imagine them playing soccer. Right? We're visiting the house. And there's a, someone there in the house and say, see all those children playing? Yeah. One of them, that one, is going to, he's going to inherit the whole thing. Which one? That one. That one. But he looks like, which one? I can't see. Which one is it? The one with the ball there? No, he's just passed it. Hold on. No, that got it. He's got now. He's got them all like that one. He's the heir. Really? Well, the guardians say, don't do that. Blow the whistle on him. Get off. Hey, he's the heir. But while he's an heir, he's under the guardian. While he's a child, he's under the guardian. He doesn't look anybody. He does what the guardian tells him. He's under, under authority of someone who is not an heir. He's the heir. He, he's ultimately the owner of everything. But while he's a child, he's under the guardian. And he looks like any other child. He's the one with the ball at the moment. There he goes. Hard to distinguish him. That's what Paul is saying. He's like a slave. He's under guardians. He's got no authority at all. This is a kid. He's told what to do. And all of it is looking forward. It says, waiting for the date. What date? There's a day coming 
when he will be adopted and given full rights as a son. Now, in the Jewish culture, there came a day of adoption. You could translate it adoption. The NIV translates it, I think, coming to full rights. No longer a child, but now authentically the heir. And he steps out of being a child. He's no longer under the guardian. He's the heir. He's inheriting. He's coming into everything that was always ordained for him. And now that has happened, he is no longer under a slave. He's above a slave because he's a son. And that's what Paul is saying. What are you playing at? You used to be under the guardian when you were a child. But now, the time has come. The time has fully come. God sent his son down, born of a woman under the law, that we would be redeemed from the law and brought out to full sonship. No longer under a guardian. Why are you going back to those elementary things? Why are you playing that? You're a son now. You relate to the father now. You don't relate to rules and laws. What are you playing at? You are now a son with the father. Say goodbye to that guardian. He's done his job. Now, beloved, that's how it's us for us as Christians. We, we don't want to go back to the kind of don't touch, don't taste, don't handle religion, which Paul talks about in Colossians. He's fighting this everywhere. Don't get enslaved. Don't let anyone take you captive. Don't let anyone put you under because you've been brought to sonship. And not only that, as we'll come to in a moment, not only are you a son, but because you're a son, you've got the spirit of his son in you. Crying out, but Father, hey, this is real. This isn't just legal language. You're at home with the Father. You call him Abba. This is revolution. This is breathtaking breakthrough. You receive adoption as sons. You don't relate to the Ten Commandments anymore. It's over. It's finished. You don't relate there. It's done its job. It's shown you that you're a sinner. Shown you you need a saviour. And once you find the saviour, you don't need that anymore. You are discharged from it. That you might enjoy sonship. Now it says in John 1, in verse 11, he came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. As many as did receive him, he gave the, the right, the old King James says the power Actually, it's a Greek word, exousia, which means authority. He gave the authority to become children of God. If you like, you're authorised. As many as received him, they were authorised to become children of God. So what happened in the early days was the gospel was preached, of course, the Jew first, as the scripture repeatedly shows. He was the Jewish Messiah. He came to the Jews. But John says he came to them They didn't receive him. Those who did, he gave the full rights. But that's happened all around the Mediterranean. As Paul went to synagogue after synagogue, he went first to the Jewish people. And those who did receive, hallelujah, many didn't. And so he had to go outside and bring forth fruit. We pray that it will. The Holy Spirit, we once again now open this word. And we pray that you would be our teacher Holy Spirit, would you please inspire me to speak and each of us to listen that what we do here is a work of God and that we're taken forward in our faith. Hear us, Father, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're considering this Christmas season but not looking at the shepherds and Mary and Joseph and the the stable and many things that we associate with the Christmas season, but looking at one of Paul's great, wonderful statements about what was taking place at this Christmas season, how God sent his son, who was born of a woman, and then subsequently God sent forth the spirit of his son. And so Paul, in this classic Trinitarian verse, is talking about God's great plan of salvation, sending his son sending the Spirit of His Son that we might come into full sonship ourselves, enjoying the massive privileges of being children of God. It's a magnificent passage 
and incredibly, wonderfully insightful in terms of what God was doing. And it's good sometimes to sweep away the snow and the tinsel and look at what was God actually up to in this facade and preach sonship to pagans. Preach the gospel to pagans. And as many as received him, they were given immediate status as sons. Now we just need to think, what does adoption mean? Adoption is a beautiful word. It's something that happens immediately. You don't grow into adoption. Either in terms of the Jews coming of age and saying, right, you are now fully my son, step into your maturity. Or whether you say outside to the pagan, I adopt you into my family. Interesting, being away from England at Christmas means I missed Ben-Hur which is inevitably on somewhere on television at Christmas in England. And funny enough, I stumbled on it a couple of months ago before we came out. We're just looking around the television. Oh, Ben-Hur. I haven't watched it for years. But if you stay in England, every Christmas somewhere you can watch Ben-Hur. And it's probably the best-known story of adoption as it was in Bible days. You remember the story? Many of you will, perhaps. When we talk about adoption... It's not as our modern Western style of maybe parents looking at a little baby and saying, I want to adopt this lovely little baby. I want to care for it. I want them to bring them up from childhood. They adopted men to inherit their possession. So in the story of Ben-Hur, Ben-Hur is by this time a slave in a galley ship. He's got nothing. He doesn't own anything. He's totally impoverished. He's got nothing to live for. He's told you live for this galley. You live, you keep rowing to stay alive. He's got nothing. He's lost everything. He's just an impoverished rower. And the story shows that in a certain battle, he gets freed and saves the general, who's become admiral of the whole army and the fleet. And they win a great battle because Ben-Hur rescues him. And as a reward, this guy who's not only the the kind of admiral of the fleet, he's also a senator. He's a terrifically high figure. He says, I adopt you. Not as a little baby, but as my inheritor, the one who will inherit everything. Not like we were saying earlier about the heir being one of the children of the house. That was the Jewish situation. Here, it's like in the pagan world, Paul uses this language and says, now, you're going to be adopted in like they did in Roman days. You're going to be brought right in from outside. Now, that was uh, very common in those days. People who had nothing before, all their debts are written off. They have no resources. They inherit the riches of the guy who inherits, who adopts them. All debts cancelled. New identity, new status, new name. You're now the son of the senator. Incredible trans. You don't grow into it. It happens now. Now you're not. Now you are. That's adoption. You're brought right in. Interestingly enough, Julius Caesar adopted Octavian, who in turn adopted Tiberius, who in turn adopted Caligula. That's how these guys inherited becoming the emperor. They adopted them into their family. Then Caligula's uncle Claudius adopted Nero. So it's just the way it was. They adopted into their family. J.I. Packer says this, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even than justification. The highest privilege He goes on to say, there's nothing higher in the whole Christian life than to say, I am a son of God. See, justification puts me right with God. Justification says that the judge says, I declare you righteous. But it implies no relationship with the judge. The judge just says, you are no longer a sinner, you're righteous. You say, thank you very much, goodbye. It's great to be righteous. But it doesn't say, I have a relationship with the judge. So justification is great, Wonderful. So is redemption. Used to be a slave. I'm in bonds. 
I'm, I'm enslaved. I need to be delivered. I need to be redeemed from slavery. Hey, redemption is great. You are no longer a slave. The price is paid. Walk away from your slavery. Hallelujah. I'm free. I'm no longer in bondage. I'm a free person. But adoption says more than that. You're not just right with God. You're not just free from slavery. You're right, right into the Father's heart. You're adopted. You're brought home to God. You're called God, Father. This is the highest privilege that the Gospel grants us, to be right with God. And then to read this, you think people do adopt sometimes, wow, that was amazing, you just saved me. Or this happened, or this event, or this chance thing. No, it says in the Bible, this adoption that we enjoy, he chose us before the foundation of the world. See, how did I get adopted? He chose me before he made the heavens and the earth. He chose us. He, in love, Ephesians 1, 4, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Do you know this? God always wanted you. He always wanted you. He always wanted you. Before he made Mount Everest, before he made the islands and the nations and the seas and the universe, he always wanted you. He chose you before the foundation of the world in love. Why does he want me? In the mystery of his love, he always wanted you. In love, he predestined, he ordained, he brought about your conversion, he ordered the circumstances that exposed you to this good news and he quickened you. He said, I wanted you, I've always wanted you, I wanted you, I wanted you. We're there because he acted in advance. He brought us into his family. So now we can call God Father because we are sons, it says, because we are now legally sons. He sends the spirit of his son. It's an unusual phrase to describe the Holy Spirit. It's pretty unique in the Bible to call it the spirit of his son. But he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. He sends the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. That's the second sending. The first is the sending of the Son into the womb of Mary. The second is the sending of the Spirit from the Father into our hearts, whereby we shout, Father, Abba, that intimate word of love. We belong, Father. We belong to you. You're our Father. And so now, dear friends, we, we don't live in relation to law anymore. We, rel- we live by relation to the Father. We live like Jesus lived. See how Jesus, he lived under the law, we're told. He, he was born of Mary under the law. But you don't, when you read the story of Jesus, think, gosh, he's keeping every rule. Every... He's a he's real legalist, this Jesus. You don't feel that at all, do you? If you read the Gospel stories, you don't think, oh, wait a minute, rule 73, cross 2, I better not do that. You know, he's not, he doesn't live like that. He lives with his Father. In my own devotional reading this morning, I came to John 11, and it just says how Jesus uh, arrived at Lazarus's grave, and uh, it just says, "Father, I thank you; you always hear me." Wow! Talk about a son with the Father. So the news came to him: Lazarus is that he whom you love is dying, and he said he waited. What are you doing, Jesus? What rule says you have to do that? There is no rule that says you have to do that but his father is communicating to him. He lives with the father. And that's what we're called to, dear friends. We're not called to live to the rules. Are you keeping the rules? Are you obeying? No, you live with your father, like Jesus did. And when he came to the tomb, he said, I thank you, father. You always hear me. And he spoke, Lazarus, come on. Wow. This is a relationship with the father. This is living as a son with the father. Just see how Jesus lived it out. He, he always responded to the Father's initiatives. He actually said this, I do nothing unless the Father shows me. We're talking about a relationship with God as Father. We're not talking about, oh, you're not allowed to do that, the rules say so. Christians aren't allowed to go there. They're not allowed to do that. No, it's in the rule book. No, look, there you go. It's not. No, it's what does the Father want? And Jesus constantly lived that way. I do nothing unless the Father shows me I came to do his will. 
That's his preoccupation. Jesus was in eternal face-to-face fellowship with the Father. They delighted in one another. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. Our huge privilege, dear friends, is that we are being drawn into the biggest circle of love you could ever imagine. The passionate love, the Father for the Son, the Son for the Father, the Holy Spirit, the mystery of the Trinity, the beauty of God's eternal delight in himself. Looking at the reflection of himself, as it were, in his Son and delighting in him. Passionately loving him. This is my beloved Son. The Son in whom all my delight. The Father loves the Son. The Son says, I want to do all things to please the Father. Now we're invited. Come into that. Do you want to come into that world? Come and enjoy the Father. Why would you ever go back to the Torah, the commandments? Why would you go back to those Jewish rules? Why would you want to be circumcised? Why would you want to keep the Sabbath, eat those foods? What are you, what are you up to? That's behind. Let's live with the Father now. You're not a child anymore. You're not some adolescent. No, no, stop. No, you mustn't. No, no, you're a son now. Get to know your Father. Be like Jesus. Father, what do you want from me? Live like Jesus did. He enjoyed the Father's love. He said the Father loves the Son. Shows him what he's doing. I abide in his love. So he says, keep yourself in the love of God. Dwell there. Enjoy that huge privilege of sonship. And he said this, I'm not alone, the Father's always with me. So the people are withdrawing from him. Arrogant apostles saying, they may let you down, I never will, and they all flee. He said, but the Father's still with me. He's, loved, he's enjoying the Father's companionship, unique companionship. And Jesus told us, live this way. He says, love your enemies. Why? That you may be children of your father. Be like dad. He's incredibly kind. His son shines on the righteous and the unrighteous. He's just generous. Be like your father. That's the way Jesus taught. Be like your father. Bring glory to your father. Be perfect like your father. Glorify him. Let your light shine before men that men may see your good works and glorify your Father. Bring honour to your Father, this new way of living. Pray, Father, hallowed be your name. Be preoccupied with the Father's glory. Don't be preoccupied with rules and regulations. Honouring the Father, enjoying your sonship. Please the Father. Don't practice your piety before men, Jesus said that they may be praised by them, you'll have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Now, when you pray to your Father, you come with new intimacy. Don't pray like the heathen with external repetition. Come, say, Father. That was revolutionary when Jesus used the word Abba. I can only imagine that when Mary and Joseph heard Jesus praying, and they hear him say, Abba. What? Abba? Talking to God? Jewish people would talk about him in the heavens. They didn't even use his name. They told you, must not blaspheme against his name. They thought the best way would be not to use his name at all. So they talked about him in the heavens. Jesus is Abba. And then he says to us, now you can borrow my relationship. You may call him Abba. You have right authorization to call him Abba. Don't be anxious. Why? Well, your heavenly Father knows. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious what's happening in the planet. Live with your father. Also, respect your brothers. Jesus said, John 20, go tell my brothers. I go to my God and your God, to my father and your father. Go tell my brothers. So we read in Galatians, there's neither Greek nor Jew. Neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. And so this adoption, the fact that we're all adopted, means we're all in this breathtakingly valuable relationship with God. So we build cross-culturally. We build into all kinds of different relationships. What we have in common is our union with the Father through Christ. It's interesting that at Antioch, where you have such an international gathering, and the leadership of the church was made of people from different tribes and nations, 
If you look at Acts 13, it says it was there they were first called Christians. Why? Well, that's what they had in common. Jesus. They didn't have their Jewish background in common. They didn't have anything else culturally in common. They were rich and poor. They were foreign. They were national. What do we call them? Well, we've got to call them Christians. That's what they've got in common. We're brothers together in the family of God. And last of all, what does the future hold? What does the future hold? Well, adoption, as I said, is actually, in Bible terms, about inheritance. That's the main point. The heir, it says in Galatians. He's the heir. He's the, that kid's the heir. He, he's, he owns it all. He's just a kid. He's under a guardian while he's a kid. Now he's redeemed from that. Now he's a son. And if a son, then an heir. God sent forth his son, not just for Christmas cards, not just for Bethlehem, praise God for all those lovely things, but listen, God sent forth his son to redeem us from under the law that we might have full rights as a son. We might be adopted as sons. Handpicked, chosen in eternity, but now into full rights as sons. Heirs. Romans 8, 17, if children, then heirs also. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. You inherit. What's the future hold? Breathtaking inheritance. Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, all things are yours. You're going to inherit all things. The future is hard to even contemplate. It's so magnificent. In Romans 8, the one place where the word adoption is used slightly out of step with all the other places, but nevertheless holds a lot of light for us. I'll just read it to you and we're just drawing to a close here. He says in Romans 8.23, Not only this, we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, Spirit of Sonship, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption of sons the redemption of our body. Now, Paul uses that adoption just in a slightly different way here. He's saying, that's when you come to full adoption. The redemption of our bodies. We're waiting for that. Right? So, there's salvation future. We've got salvation present, salvation past. We have been saved. We are being saved. But the ultimate adoption is when these bodies, hallelujah, we get a new body. It's good. I'm so pleased I'm going to get a new body. Right? <laughs> it gets better news every year. I'm going, I'm going to get a new body. And not only that, Romans 8 says this, then there will come the full, the fullness, the, 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 the sons of God will come into their full inheritance. We will be changed. Even now we're the sons of God. It doesn't yet appear what we shall be. When he appears, we'll be like him. We're going to get completely new bodies and look like Jesus. Extraordinary, phenomenal future inheritance that's going to come. We'll be exactly like him and we'll have new bodies. And then it says, the whole creation is straining on tiptoe. And Paul kind of crowds in words. Straining, it's like you're on tiptoe, straining your neck. And the whole of creation, straining to see straining to see. A friend of mine who lives in uh, Heathfield, Sussex, not long ago, his car, at the wheel, he had a heart attack, he fell, the car ran into the side, he collapsed, and he said this, he said, as I was there, I fell, and suddenly he said, I was outside my body looking at it. And he said, I saw the paramedics come, and I'm looking on. I'm outside. And he said, uh, they, they picked it up and he said, they, they took it off to the hospital. And he said, I'm, I'm thinking, he said, suddenly, I'm with Jesus. And, and fleetingly, he wrote his testimony, I put it on my blog actually, he wrote his testimony, he said, I was suddenly with Jesus. And he said, it was so wonderful. He said, it was so wonderful. I didn't want to come back. I didn't want to come back. He said, I've had to explain to my wife so many times, no, I really love you dear, but I didn't want to come back. He said, she's a wonderful wife, but I didn't want to come back. He said, I just saw the Lord. And he said, and I saw everything was worshipping. Everything was worshipping. 
And he said something that's so tied in with something that a guy called Alex Buchanan, who's quite a well-known prophet in the UK, told me some years ago that he passed away briefly on the operating theatre. He said, I was gone. He said, the last words I heard were, we're losing him. I said, I was gone. And he said, I saw phenomenal things. And he said, you'll never believe this, Terry. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm very self-conscious talking about these things. He said, but he said, I saw fields of grass. And he said, all the grass was singing praise. He said, it was all singing. And this other guy said similar. I thought, that's weird. I've heard that from those two different... It's like the whole of creation was worshipping. And it says in the Bible, the whole creation is straining. What's it straining, waiting for? It's waiting for the full revelation of the sons of God. Then, the creation itself will be released from its futility to break into the glory of the sons of God. History is waiting for the sons of God to come to full inheritance. We're now sons. Don't live as children under the law. Come on. Your sons, enjoy your father. Fellowship with him. But there's a day coming, beloved, when our full inheritance will be manifested. We'll have new heaven, new earth, new bodies appropriate. And as we read in Daniel 7, the Son of Man approaches the the Ancient of Days and receives dominion and power. Well, Jesus is receiving it. Then there's a few verses later it says, and the dominion will be given to the saints of the Most High. Who are they? What did Daniel think? What's all this about? And then we get our New Testament revelation. We are co-heirs with him. If sons, then heirs. Co-heirs. We shall inherit all things. So hard for us to take in, isn't it? It says in the scriptures that hasn't entered the heart of man what God has prepared. And so as we think of Christmas, dear friends, as we think of the season, hear what Paul says. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons, no longer a child, no longer under the guardian, free from the guardian. We say, thank you, thank you, guardian, for looking after me in my adolescence. Now I'm a son. I don't go back there. I don't go back there. He's done his job. I come to the Father. You're living your Christian life like that? See, this time of the year, sometimes you're thinking, New Year's resolutions. I must get some New Year's resolutions. Well, praise God. They can be okay. But be careful you don't get a religion of rules. Well, great is the mystery. God was manifest in the flesh. We thank you, Lord Jesus, not just to give a little bit of an example not only to save us from sin, but to change our status completely. To make us sons with the Father. Father, I ask you, please help us to live at home with the Father, secure in your love, enjoying that relationship, anticipating full inheritance that lies before us. Lord, keep on instructing us, guiding us, bring us into everything that lies before with joy and faith and certainty. In Jesus' name, amen.